Good morning. My name is Chris Marsh. My husband Dave and I have been attending Waynesboro Free Methodist since mid-November. We also have two grown-up boys that we're learning to let go of. <laughs> um, it's my privilege today to read the scripture from John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring during these things about him, and so the chief priest and the Pharisees sent, his servants, sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The word of the, this is the word of the Lord. Chris, thank you so much. <laughs> if you haven't turned your Bibles yet, get there. John chapter 7. Uh, we obviously have a lot to cover. Uh, that was a long passage. She did well. Thank you so much for reading. Some of you, when you heard that music start playing again, you kind of, oh boy, we're back at this music thing again. And uh, that'll probably be the only time you hear it. But we are, for those who don't know, 
entering back into a season of studying through the Gospel of John, going through this passage by passage. And, and uh, it, we're trying to do this in this series called I Am because we're hopefully trying to rediscover or discover for the first time the true nature of Jesus, the real Jesus. Now, we started this series called I Am February of 2022, last year, right? And, and we took a break for summer. Uh, we took a break for the Advent season. And then we took kind of the break at the beginning of this year. But now we're back into it. And, and for those who don't know uh, how the book of John is kind of outlined, the way we uh, kind of have been looking through it is that there's this prologue. It's the first, kind of the first chapter. And then there's Jesus' public ministry, which starts in chapter 1 and goes all the way, chapter 12, where he's doing miracles and debating with the crowds and teaching the masses. And then there's his private ministry, which it's, he's ministering to his disciples up in the other room. And he's praying for them, consoling them, and all these things. And then there's this passion ministry, which we're about to celebrate in a few weeks with the Holy Week almost, right? His triumphal entry, his crucifixion, his death, burial, his resurrection, right? And then lastly, there's the epilogue, which is chapter 21. Uh, Last year, it took, we, we, got, we did 30 sermons in the Gospel of John. 30 sermons, and we got this far. Uh, we got to actually halfway through that. We got through chapter 6, and kind of halfway through chapter 7. Now, uh, it, we're, so we're kind of in that part where Jesus is still doing his public thing, Right? And, and this week, I got a chance to kind of outline potentially all the sermons for the year. Again, I kind of op- hold that with an open hand. I can just say, Jesus, you lead. But if there's direction in this, let's go. And, and so I, I kind of outlined it for the rest of the year, and it looks like we'll get this far. Um, we, we, might, we actually might get halfway through chapter 17 if I don't uh, pause, because here's the thing. You can already tell I have, I have uh, picked massive sections of scripture to preach. And I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't like that at all. Uh, I'd rather just go verse by verse. But if, again, we were to go that slow through the gospel of John, we'd be here until 2030. And I don't know if that's what y'all want to do. I think we want to teach. I want to be able to teach the whole book uh, before I die. So, Lord willing. Um, But it's very important that we're in the gospel of John. It's very important that we're all coming to this together to study through it. Because here's the reality. We kind of started the series with this idea you and I might hold different images of who Jesus is. Yeah, we agree He's Lord and Savior, but we, we might disagree with some things. We might uh, have a different perspective on this little and how it applies to this area of our lives. We all carry different images of Jesus. You know, you know like the, the eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, or the, the teenage Jesus, or the bearded Jesus, or the tuxedo t-shirt Jesus, or the ninja Jesus fighting evil samurai off Jesus. Now, of course, that's obviously very ludicrous. Um, but in all honesty, there's just ways that our understandings of Jesus might vary. And the point isn't that we stay varied. The point is that Jesus is working within us, unity in the faith, that we grow together in the knowledge of Him. And that's what we're after. And the Gospel of John is a very good book to serve us in that way because in reality it says, John tells us exactly why he wrote it. These words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. So this book is written evangelistically 
but also apologetically, right? What about those who do come to this book already in the faith? Well, it's a very good way to sure it up. It's a good way to dig your roots even deeper, but it's also evangelistic. This is a really good book to turn new believers or lost people to. It's really good. So John is writing to preach to those who don't know the gospel and to encourage those who do to the end that we are convinced that Jesus is who? The Christ. You notice how he wrote that? You notice how he says that? Did he say that, 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 that Jesus Christ is the Christ? No, no, no. Did you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? You know it's not, right? Like even though people swear with his name that way, like it is his last name, I don't like it when they do. I had a friend who'd be like, don't talk about my friend like that, right? Well, this wasn't a surname that his mama gave him, Jesus Christ. He wasn't born with this. Christ is a Greek word, Christos. Can you say Christos? It means anointed one. It means anointed one. And that's going to line up with our Hebrew word, Mashiach. You want to say that? Yeah, get the on the end, right? Mashiach, right? That also means an anointed one. And it's where we get our word, Messiah. Exactly. Our word, Messiah. Now, you may have, uh, when you hear this, you may recall what we already went through in John chapter 1, verse 41. John, the author of this book, says, uh, in, in talking about how the disciples are discovering Jesus, his, uh, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the... Messiah, and then he puts in this parentheses, which is translated Christ. So we have these two words interchangeably, Hebrew and Greek, and they mean the anointed one. And, and what we're meaning here is simply the one who has had oil poured out over him. The one who has had oil poured out over him for a specific purpose. So there were some priests there were some uh, prophets, there were some kings who were all poured over. They were all anointed. However, the Messiah was an Old Testament figure that the prophets, the priests, and the kings all were pointing to. This Messiah had been promised throughout all the ages. Now, I don't have enough time to review all of the Old Testament and how all of it was pointing to this Messiah. You can do that on your own study, and I'll help you with that. Uh, but in summary, the Messiah was promised to do kind of like three things. First, he was going to rescue from captivity. Secondly, it was understood that the Messiah was going to restore to prosperity. And then thirdly, it was understood that he would rule for eternity. He was going to rescue, restore, and rule. Rescue from captivity, restore to prosperity, and rule for eternity. Now the problem was, most people understood that on a political level. On a national political level. Especially in Jesus' day, that was why it was so hard for them to get their head around Jesus. They were believing that the Messiah was going to show up and rescue Israel, the nation, from the oppressive captivity of the Roman Empire. They believed that the Messiah was going to come in and restore Israel to its wealth and its standing among all the nations as a nation that was leading the way. And that, they, that the Messiah was also going to rule the political nation with a rod of iron like David, with justice and righteousness as king forever. Now, they had no clue at all that what God really intended for the first coming of the Messiah was that he was going to rescue the world from the oppressive captivity of sin, Satan, and death. 
that he was going to restore people back to a prospering, life-giving relationship with God. And then thirdly, that he would rule his people within the fallen world and one day come on a second coming and totally remake the world and rule it in perfection and fullness then. So this Messiah, as understood scripturally, was going to come in and just radically change the course of all of history. In today's passage, again, 27 verses, I think I did my math right, is all about this Messiah figure who everyone thought he was supposed to be. And this whole passage is begging the question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? It's asking the question. These these crowds are all asking the question. The gospel is asking this question. Will the real Messiah please stand up? You remember that game show? Some of you would be like, that was a game show? I thought it was Eminem's song. Guys, John's gospel, this passage, is all about the identity of Jesus and its connection, his connection to the Messiah. Just who is he? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he a prophet or is he a good man? Is he a teacher? Is he demon-possessed? As everyone in this passage had their opinion. Everyone in this passage had a response. And the passage that we're going to be walking through finds Jesus among the crowds. And, and, and I want to remind you of the context because it's going to play a vital role in how we understand some of what we're going to be studying. There is a festival happening right now in Jerusalem in this passage. It's called the Festival of Booths. Can you say booths? Or tabernacles? Or tents? Right? It's the festival. It's a major festival happening where, where, where all of Israel would flock to Jerusalem and celebrate and remember the wanderings in the wilderness that they had decades or centuries ago. Their, their wanderings between Egypt and when they finally got to the promised land. Because in that time, they were living in tents. And what, it did, what this festival did was recalled and remembered in a very object lesson-y way God's faithfulness, His goodness to see them through a desert into a promised land, out of slavery, into wandering, and into the promised land. So it celebrated that. So keep this festival as the box in which this whole passage fits in. So Jesus, in, at the beginning of chapter 7, he secretly goes up to Jerusalem after his family kind of misunderstands him and in a way mocks him. And then the crowds, whenever he's in, this, in Jerusalem among the crowds with this festival, the crowds are confused, they're murmuring about him. And then the authorities, we find out later on in chapter 7 before our passage, that the authorities challenge and reject this Jesus, and they want to kill him. And so our story kind of picks up in that passage. And I will just say, as you're reading through it, you probably notice how it's like looking here at this crowd, and then it jumps over to here to this group of people, and then it's like, oh, now we're over here, wait, how, what about those people? So there's just a lot of dynamics in this passage. So I'm going to trust that the narrative you guys will study on your own. But what I have to do is, just for the sake of time, go through some of the key points for us with this text. So what we're going to do is we're going to examine this text twice. The first way we're going to examine this text is we're going to look to the signs within this passage that actually affirm that Jesus really is the Messiah. And again, that's going to serve evangelistically and apologetically. 
Secondly, we're going to go back through this passage pretty briefly, though, and we're going to look at the spectrum of all the crowd's opinions about Jesus and how they responded. Now, along the way, as we're going through this, and we're going to go quick, so you better put on your seatbelts, have your pen in hand, and be ready to write. Along the way, I will point out to you just how ironic things are in this passage. All the crazy irony that's included by the author. You see, Johnny, the author of this book, was a pretty witty guy. And he included a lot of ironic things in just this passage alone. So, first wave through this text is we're going to look at the five signs that identify that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, in this text. Now this is, again, just five throughout all of Scripture. Five throughout all of the Gospel of John. There's tons more. I'm just looking at this passage. So the first sign that we see in this text that affirms Jesus as the Messiah, we'll call them Messiah markers. You might could call them criteria, whatever you want to say, is in verse 27, and it's Unknown origins. Can you say unknown origins? So the first part of this passage starts off with the crowd just being shocked. They see Jesus talking to the crowds out in public. They also know that it's the authorities who want to kill him. And they're thinking, wait, why on earth? Jesus is talking to the crowds and yet the authorities are doing nothing about it? And here's the conclusion that they come to. They are like, well... Maybe the authorities actually know that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe they, maybe they got it. Maybe they got insider information. That notion is the first time, that in this passage, this is the first time that notion has ever been made in the courts of Jerusalem, that Jesus is the Messiah in the Gospel of John. But here's the thing. They get to that kind of, uh, well, was that what this means? And, they say, and then they kind of immediately rule it out because of something they believe about the Messiah. Look at verse 27 with me. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. So they're like, they, could it be that they think that Jesus is the Messiah? But wait, wait, wait. We know where Jesus is from. He's from Galilee, from Nazareth. Right? He, we're not supposed to know where the Messiah is coming from. And that's one key identifying marker of the Messiah for the Jews. No one was supposed to know where the Messiah was from. And here's one thing that's ironic. That's not even biblical. It's nowhere in Scripture where they say the Messiah's not going to know where he's from and nobody else is going to know where the Messiah's from. This idea that no one was going to know where the Messiah is coming from isn't coming from Scripture. It was just this theory among the Jews that the Messiah would be born of flesh and blood and yet he wouldn't even know who he is himself until Elijah shows up and anoints him. Not not too many people are sure where it comes from, but a lot of people believed it, apparently. They made up their own criteria for what the Messiah was supposed to do or be. And here's the second irony to this. They said they know where Jesus is from, but guess what? They don't actually know where Jesus is from. Isn't that ironic? They make up their own criteria, and yet Jesus somehow still fits that. Right? It's crazy. It's, they actually don't even, they don't even know where Jesus is from. Where do they think that he's from? They think he's from Galilee, Nazareth, right? But Jesus responds in verse 28 and 29. As he was teaching in the temple, read it with me, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me 
is true. In other words, it, he really did send me. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So, so he's like saying, hey, you think you know where I'm from, but you don't. Right? I, I actually come from the Father who sent me. That really is what happened. So, so in a way, this made-up criteria, this made-up Messiah marker about his origins not being known still is ironically true. They don't actually know where he's from. They didn't know he was from God. Not only that, they didn't even know he was from Bethlehem, not just Galilee. We'll talk more about that later. So, first Messiah marker. Unknown origins, does he check that box? Yep. At least how they understood it. The second Messiah marker we see in this text is that he would be a wonder worker. Can you say wonder worker? Not a W-A-N-D-E-R. We don't want him working wanderers. We want him working wonders, right? Check out verse 31. However, many from the crowd believed in Jesus and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Again, here's another very ironic marker. Again, this isn't something that's promised in the Old Testament. You can, you can look at a bunch of commentaries. It's nowhere promised in Scripture that the Messiah was supposed to come up doing these massive miracles or signs. It was just assumed. Because, you know, they have this guy named Moses. You know that guy who kind of did some pretty crazy things in Egypt and then, like, parted a Red Sea? Now, obviously, we know it was the Lord. But they're thinking, well, if Moses did that, won't the Messiah do it? Isn't Moses supposed to be lesser than the Messiah? And so again, this is another kind of man-made expectation of who the Messiah was going to be. Even though this is a man-made Messiah, here's what's ironic again. Does Jesus check that box too? Yeah! He worked many wonders and signs. Miracles. We've already seen several of them in this gospel alone. So, wonder worker box. Does he check it? Check. Third sign, third Messiah marker, and this is the big kahuna. He would offer living water. Can you say that with me? Offer living water. Look at verse 37, 38. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Ooh. So a whole sermon could be preached on that alone, right? And, and I wish I could talk about it, but we're keeping it in the context of the passage. Keep in mind the festival. Keep in mind what it remembered, what it meant. This is an eight-day national festival. All citizens flocking to Jerusalem the whole week, everyone living in makeshift tents and shelters or in booths or tabernacles, you might call them, that they would build. And they would do this in remembrance of their time, not only wandering in the wilderness, living in tents, but also remembering all the needs that they experienced while living in a desert. You see, this is actually a really hard time for the Israelites to look back on and remember. It's very difficult culturally for the people because they were literally wandering through deserts. Like you can't stop and just kind of plow a little of a hedge and 
plant some seeds in there and stay there long enough to reap the harvest. They were constantly moving, constantly portable. Not only that, they're in a desert, which means what's not there? What's up? Water. It's scarce. It hardly rains. Guys, if you are thirsty and you are in a desert, what happens to you? You die. You're dead. This is why so many of the miracles during the time of Israel's wandering in the desert had to do with water. You remember you remember how the bitter water was made drinkable? Remember how twice God made water come forth from rocks? Guys, in a desert wilderness, water means life. In a desert, if you're thirsty, it doesn't look too good for you. As water was such a precious provision during the wilderness wanderings, it was such an integral part as well with this festival. You see, they had ceremonies during this festival where water would be gathered and brought through the streets and people would praise God and thank God for the provision of water. Guys, you know how spoiled we are? We've got a baptismal that can bring water in from somewhere else. You got water that can be piped right into your house. In other parts of the country, you got to go get a bucket and go down to a stream that everybody shares. We're spoiled. <laughs> water in a desert, though, just doesn't exist. And to get back to our passage, this Messiah marker, Jesus on the very last day of this festival where they remember God's faithfulness in the wandering, his sheltering over them, his provision of water in the desert. Jesus himself stands up among all the crowds and he cries out above all the noise, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Guys, Jesus is inviting the crowds to himself. If they're dying, he's got the water. Are you dying? Absolutely we're dying. We're all dying. And what can we do about it? Run to the water. Jesus invites us to come to him. Because the one in the desert whose strength is failing, who is struggling to go on, hears the promise of water? What do you think he's going to do? Nah, I'll be good. He's going to run as hard as he can to that water source. That's going to be his only hope of life. That's why Jesus is really your only hope. Because only Jesus can provide this water. Only Jesus can give you life. Not only that, but look at what happens. Look at what Jesus promises. He doesn't just simply offer a drink. Remember, you can recall his conversation with the woman at the well. He says this here. He's going to put a river of water in your heart. Guys, to those in a desert wandering around, thirsty and dying of thirst, a cup of water is going to do pretty good. But a river of water changes everything about their lives. It changes the way they live. 
It guarantees life. It's a source of unending life in the wilderness. And this is what Jesus is promising. If you come to him, he's going to give you unending life by putting his spirit inside of you. He's going to put some of him in you. So in in effect, what he's saying is this. If you're dying and we all are, come to me. Not only am I going to give you life, but I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you will always have my life in you. My spirit will be inside of you and you will become a river of unending life. The spirit is the river. And no desert, no drought can ever cause it to run dry. Water to the thirsty, life to the dying. Jesus is all of this and more. In other words, Jesus is standing up and proclaiming, hey, guess what? I am the fulfillment of this festival. You come here to remember God's faithfulness for your wanderings in the wilderness? Come to me. I am the fulfillment of this. You're wandering in life and you're thirsty and you're dying of it. I alone have the waters of life. And I will put my spirit in you and he will be a river of life flowing within you. You know what else? Because this is reminiscent of Isaiah 55 where water is offered by the servant. You know what else he says is that you don't have to bring payment for this water. You don't have to offer up something in exchange. It's free. You know you're dying of thirst and Jesus has the life-giving water. Guys, isn't that just so stinking gospelicious? It is insane. And notice, notice again, the Holy Spirit is the water. The Holy Spirit is the source of life within. It makes sense. We don't have life within us. God does, and he puts himself into us. And if you can remember, Johnny B., the baptizer, said that the Messiah was going to come and baptize in the who? The Spirit. So I would say, out of all of the Messiah markers we see in this text, this one is the smack you on the face, you better believe Jesus or you're just stupid kind of text, right? I'm not actually saying that, but the text says that, so. I'm sorry if you took that offensive. The Messiah offering living water, does Jesus check that box? Yes. Then we have two more, real quick. The fourth one for the Messiah marker, David's lineage. Can you say David's lineage? Look at verse 42. The crowds are still debating again. Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring? Hey, you know what's funny is the crowd, for the first time, actually uses a biblical Messiah marker. They're like, hey, we actually know what scripture says about this Messiah guy. So, so, so here's where they kind of get that. There's several passages that kind of get, get used to explain that, but one of the most preeminent ones would be 2 Samuel 7. God is talking to David. And he says, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now we know that in part he's talking about Solomon, but we also know that Solomon is a type, an image of the coming Messiah. The Messiah would come from David's line. Now, how do we prove that? Well, 
Easy peasy. There's two genealogies in the New Testament. One of them is in Matthew. Another one is in Luke. Matthew wrote out an ancestry line that goes from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Done, right? Well, no. Luke says, I'll do you one better, Matthew. You think you can be so meticulous? Watch me. Luke writes out a genealogy that goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Guys, I don't even know my ancestry past my grandparents. I mean, I could look it up. But Ancestry.com ain't got nothing on this, right? Like, we can track Jesus' lineage back to the first human being that ever existed. And guess whose name shows up in that lineage line? David. So does this Messiah, this Jesus, come from the lineage of David? Check that box. Finally, the fifth marker that we'll look at is that he comes from David's town. Can you say David's town? Look at verse 41 and 42 again. But some of the crowd said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem, where David lived? So here's another actually biblical marker for the Messiah, right? It was understood, the crowds kind of knew that Jesus was from Galilee. That's what they thought. But here's the thing, we know that he was raised there and his ministry started there, but he's not actually truly from there. But here's what's also ironic about the whole Galilee thing. Isaiah 9 promises that the light of the Messiah, of God, would arise among the Galilee of the nations. In other words, the ministry of the Messiah was going to start rising in Galilee. And guess where all of Jesus's, most of Jesus' ministry happened? Galilee. Oh, okay. Well, we're back to this idea of David's town now. And the crowd is looking at the Old Testament and they're seeing something like in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrathath. Have fun saying that. You are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Guys, this prophecy was written years after David and Solomon and most of the kings. This Messiah was going to be one who would rule and he would come from Bethlehem. Well, guess what? Do you know where the Christmas story has Jesus being born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Some people say I say it weird. Bethlehem. Him? Hum? I don't know. Matthew 2. I don't have to put that in context. It's just fact. Jesus was born in? Of Judea. So, fifth marker. Is Jesus from David's town? Check that box. So, right now, we simply have five Messiah markers from 27 verses in the Gospel of John. There are over 347 identifying markers of the Messiah from the Old Testament alone. And it turns out Jesus has fulfilled them. It was said that he was going to ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Well, he done that. It said that Roman soldiers were going to cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Well, they did that too. Not only that, it was said that the resurrection of the Messiah would take place after he died. And Jesus fits that too. 
So the crowds are here, and they're wondering, and they're asking, would the real Messiah please stand up? And this passage, this whole book, is just shouting, hey, the real Messiah stood up. He has stood up. He's been lifted up on a cross. He's been raised up from the grave and raised up into heaven. He stands victorious over Satan's sin and death in the grave. And guess what his name is? Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, son of Mary. Guys, the evidence that identifies Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, is absolutely overwhelming. And yet, despite all the overwhelming evidence, there's still so many ways that we can respond as human beings. That's one of the other dynamics in this passage. Look at verse 43. It pretty much sums up how all the crowds looked at Jesus. Verse 43, the crowd was divided. Schism. There was a division because of Jesus. Guys, this whole story, this this part of our text this morning, presents such a diverse spectrum of ways humanity will respond to the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. So I'm going to just kind of go through these really quickly, and I need you to bear with me. I'm just going to admit they're really cheesy. You ready? First, you have those who have made their handmade Messiah frame. What I mean by that is they come up with their own understanding of who they think Jesus should be, and Jesus doesn't just simply fit into it. Also, my Messiah can't talk to me about how I think about my identity or my sexuality. He can't tell me how to live. But this Jesus guy does, so I'm not going to follow him. So he doesn't fit in that. So there's the handmade Messiah frame. We saw that in verse 27. Then there are those who want to seize and silence him. They want to seize and silence. We see that in verse 30, verse 32, 44, and 45. Jesus, it says that people tried to arrest him three times in this passage alone. And why? Because they're hostile to Jesus. They work so hard to disprove Jesus. They shut him up so they, all they have to do is just ignore him. Their minds are set and they can't be changed. And then you have those who I describe as the complacently confused. The complacently confused in verse 35 and 36. They just don't get Jesus. They don't understand him. They ask all their questions, which kind of sounds intellectual but then they don't actually try to find answers. They do no investigating on their own. They take no ownership for what they know. They stay content in their confusion and in their ignorance. And guys, that is an absolutely dangerous way to live. And then you finally have those who are misinformed. Notice how the miss is in parentheses, because they have the appearance of being informed, but they just got it wrong. We see that in verse 41 and 42. They know what the scriptures say. They can quote the scriptures all day, but they just don't think Jesus fits in, and they're wrong. We have a whole ethnic people today who fit that bill. And then you finally have those who just simply missed him by that much. You see that in verse 40. These are those who simply say, yeah, Jesus was a prophet. Yeah, he was a good guy. A great moral teacher. Man, he taught good morals. Those morals he taught, mm, I like them. And yet all of that still just simply falls too short 
of who Jesus really is. And finally, there are those who have a tendency to authority appeal. They appeal to authority. We see that in verse 46 through 51 with how the authorities said, well, we're not believing in Jesus. Why would the crowds, the ignorant ones? A sermon could be done about the abuse of authority in that, but there are still people today who say that, that the, well, the current top thinkers of the day aren't they're, they're, they're the ones who are going around getting all the panel discussion gigs and they're doing all the, they're invited to have seminars and all this stuff. They're the, the, the most foremost thinkers in modern thought today. Well, they're not believing in Jesus, so why should I? Anyone who does is ignorant. They sound just like the authorities in this text. Now, you have all of these responses, right, to the overwhelming evidence of the Messiahship of Christ, Jesus. But there's really only one true response, one appropriate response. And again, I think this is probably the corniest name of it. It's called the rockin' response. You'll see why in a minute. But can you say the rockin' response? response. All right, thank you for joining me in the cheesy. I appreciate it. When Jesus asked his disciples, he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? And they had all these different things. Jesus asked his followers, and he said, who do you say that I am? What happened? Peter responds, and he says, I'm just going to put it up. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And you know what's amazing is that we see this very response in our passage today. People who said, yeah, I believe. I I will join Peter in that declaration. I'm going to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. I'm going to look at all the evidence that's presented. I'm going to look at the life of Jesus, all the promises in the Old Testament, all the the, the performance of this Jesus guy from Nazareth. I'm going to say, whoa, they fit. They're the same guy. They look at the promises of God. They look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and they are a perfect match. And you know what's so crazy is that Jesus goes on to say, now there's some debate about what Jesus meant when he said, and on this rock I will build my church. Some people think it's Peter, some people think it's the creed. How about we just say it's definitely the creed. At a minimum, upon this rock, that Jesus is the Messiah. On that rock, the church is built. On that faith, The gospel goes forward. That solid truth, that firm foundation. Now, in closing, some of you may find yourself somewhere along that spectrum today. Right? Some of you are are just simply openly hostile to Jesus. You have have your mind set. There's, There's no way that you're ever going to be okay with this Jesus guy. Some of you have your questions and your doubts and you're staying in them. Some of you are wrestling. Some of you are seeking. If you're wrestling, trust me, you're not alone. But again, if you've already made up your mind and you don't want to believe him, you will, again, find every excuse not to. But the evidence is just too overwhelming. And life is too short for you to wait. Didn't Jesus say, I will be with you for a little while longer, then I will be gone. 
There's an urgency to this. Jesus is the Messiah. He's rescued us from Satan, sin, and death. He's restored us back to right relationship with the Godhead. And he's going to rule over us in this wandering life that we have until we make it to the promised land. He's going to rule with us, rule over us with justice and righteousness. His rule is not harsh. It is good. And where he leads you, it's to your joy. So if you aren't to the point where you've gone through the spectrum and you've gotten to this place where maybe today you're finally saying for the first time, yeah, I think I have to believe Jesus is the Messiah. I don't want to be a fool anymore. I don't want to be ignorant. Today's the day. Now, for those of you who are already there, right? And and again, that's going to be the church, right? Because we are that people. We're a gathering of the saints, most likely. So if you're already there and you're already saying, yeah, I am believing that Jesus is the Messiah, my prayer is that this whole passage just was like drilling this truth even further into your confidence so that you know that your labor is not in vain, so that you know that your hope is secure, so that you know that God's love for you is unending and it's actually real, and that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are your greatest hope. I pray that it strengthened you. Not only that, but it it equipped you. Because I know, most likely, the skeptics and those on the spectrum apart from believing aren't in here. Though, If you are, praise God. Come back again. We love you. But most likely, they're in your workplace. Most likely, they might be in your own home. And they're not here with us today. I pray that this was an equipping for you. As you are the one sent into the world to bear witness to the Messiahship of Christ. And we will be a church that holds fast to that rock and we will watch as Jesus builds his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made it such an easy thing for us who humbly come to your word, not with our preconceived understandings or notions, but simply let your word speak for itself We thank you that the Messiahship of Christ and all of the evidence that proves it is in your word and it is overwhelming. And God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who have agreed with that creed, who have agreed with that truth and made it their confession and they've given their allegiance to this Mashiach, this Messiah, this Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that continues on this creed, continues on this conviction that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that we would not waver or wander from it because then that means he's the authority here, not some punk named Scott Brud. God, I pray that you would allow for your church to continue to advance with the message that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And Father, I pray that we would reach new people with this good news, strengthen our faith, and equip us to be apologists and evangelists in a world that doesn't yet know that Jesus is the Messiah. One day, everyone will know. We pray that that day would be soon and that others would come to faith in Christ long before that day so that that day when everyone finds out that Jesus really is the Messiah, that it's a day of joy, not a day of of terror. We love you, God. Jesus, we thank you. Spirit, we thank you for the life-giving you give to us, the life that you give to us, 
May we continue to walk with you, drinking you in every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you as we dismiss. But before you do, uh, again, there's some refreshments. Um, Watch out for the hot water. I would also say, if you have prayer, if you need some care, come up here. We'll be ready to minister to you. Also, um, just real quick, on your way out, there's going to be a box of free water bottles that actually have our passage on it today. I found them, so you can have them. They're for free, just to remember this day, okay? And if you don't want them, we're throwing them away. The benediction verse is going to be Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, and it says this, May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Be blessed.